Now we're going to turn to God's Word in Romans chapter 15. We're going to look, uh, God willing, at verses 1 to 13. Before we do so, though, a couple of other kind of notices. One is uh, that Elizabeth Williams uh, hopes to be returning home uh, tomorrow, and so do pray for her and Dennis. And also remember Anne Urquhart in Edinburgh as she's clearing her sister's flat. And then please do remember the Christians in India, the, uh, those of you who follow world politics, which I'm sure is all of you, uh, will know that the uh, Madeira was returned with uh, an increased majority, and uh, most Christians there anticipate uh, increased discrimination and persecution. And then next week, we will have a bookstall, and the book of the month will be a book called Ask, which is a book uh, for primarily for teenagers written by yours truly. Okay, let's go to uh, Acts 15. And this makes sense if you are, are aware of everything that has gone before of how Paul is writing to a church where there were tensions between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles, and there was persecution from out with, and there was a need for encouragement, a need for hope, uh, a need for endurance. So, let's read… Um, from verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement Give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to Him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in Him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, this morning we looked at 20 principles of how we live together as Christians, and tonight we're going to double that. We'll do four. No, <laughs> tonight we're going to do just seven. Um, and we're going to look at seven principles of what a biblical church is. Someone will say, well, I'm a biblical church, and, you know, people will occasionally contact uh, me and ask, can you tell us of any biblical churches in Dundee? Which is always interesting, because what do they mean by it, and why are they asking me? Uh, I remember a long, long time ago, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, a couple wrote me and said, we're moving to Dundee, uh, can you tell us of any biblical churches? So, I told them of seven, 
And the following Sunday, they came here, and they stayed for a long time. And um, I said, why did you come here? And they said, well, we asked you for a list of biblical churches, and you gave us seven, but you didn't mention your own. And so we were so curious as to why you didn't want us to come. So that's a kind of reverse psychology. But the principles that are here, I think, are so important to us. And number one that we get here is it's a church that builds up rather than destroys. It builds up the weak. We are strong, ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, the chapter 14 has been discussing that. There is a tendency for the strong to crush the weak. And there is a, a, a view in society that if you want to build a good team, you want to, you know, get rid of the weak. You've got a weak person in your, in, in your office team. You've got a weak player in your football team. You know, you've got a group of friends, and you, you see this often at schools, that, that there are people who are despised and rejected, and, you know, we don't want them in our gang. We don't want them in our group. And that can happen in the church as well, because people come in, and one of the things that has happened in this church over the years, and for which I am profoundly thankful, is that people have come in who have been very broken in, in many different ways. Nobody really comes in whole, but there are people who come in who know that they are not whole. And in, in the Christian church, we must seek to, to help and to protect and to encourage, because we ourselves may be in that situation. I don't know how many times I've met people who've been strong, and, and they're strong in their faith, and they're strong in their body, and they're strong in their marriage, and strong in their family, and, and, and sometimes there can be a little bit of a uh, kind of looking down on those who are not until they themselves have a breakdown. And you realize, do you know this? Weak and strong, it's all relative, but we are all weak. And I can um, think of people in, in, in different situations who've come here. I think of one young man who came here whose, shall we say, his social skills were pretty non-existent. And it was very, very awkward in lots of ways. And yet, by the time he left, four or five years later, that had improved enormously. Why? He didn't go on a course. He didn't… It's just being part of a community and, and learning and sharing and not being despised was uh, very, very important. And then on the other hand, I can think of people who uh, thought they were very, very strong and ended up um, turning away and walking away in different ways. Calvin says this, the stronger you are in Christ, the more you will bear with and care for the weak. The stronger that you are in Christ, it, it, it's a sign of weakness in a Christian sense to despise the weak. The stronger you are in Christ, the more you will care for those who are struggling. Because you don't need to put other people down. You don't need to feel superior to other people because you find your confidence in Christ. And that's why in verse 2, 
we each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Uh, Paul again citing the rule repeated by Christ from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And our aim is not to please ourselves. If you have a church where people just want to please themselves, you end up with enormous tensions. There's self-centeredness and self-seeking, which is natural to our fallen nature. And again, for, forgive me for quoting Calvin, because I realized this morning I broke the, a rule of a year. I didn't quote Calvin at all, so I'll make up for it this evening. Um, he says this, and by the way, the reason I quote Calvin is not to make Calvinists think I'm sound. It's just purely and simply, in terms of Bible commentary, I still don't know a better Bible commentator than Calvin. He feeds my soul and does so from the Scriptures. Uh, I always highly recommend his commentaries. But I, I love this bit that he says here, nothing impedes and checks acts of kindness more than when anyone is too much swallowed up with himself so that he has no care for others and follows only his own counsels and feelings. That's your problem. It's my problem. I look everywhere and I see myself. And I see everything about myself. And you may say, well, I don't do that. I don't do that. No, you do. All of us are naturally in our fallen nature, self-centered. We see things from our own perspective. We're overwhelmed by our own feelings as well. And, and the Lord says, not that He despises our feelings, but that we have to move away from this self-centeredness. I think um, possibly the most useful book we've ever given to anyone, and it's Annabelle who did this more than anyone. There was a while when people would come up to our house and on the table, she had a stock of them, is Tim Keller's little booklet, uh, The Blessedness of Self-Forgetfulness. Just a, just a tiny wee book, but so worthwhile. It's a church where we seek to build up others and we're not obsessed with ourselves. And it's not just bear with, by the way, <coughs> but it's also help to build him up not to knock down. Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. <clears throat> it's a sad and a shameful thing, and it's happened here as well as in other places too, when people have been left to carry their burdens on their own. I was saying to the children this morning that, you know, the song, Lean on Me, we all need someone to lean on. Well, you may be the kind of person, I don't, I stand on my own. No, you don't, not if you're a Christian, you can't, because the forces ranged against you are too strong. We all need to be able to lean on each other, and that's why it's particularly important in the church we look out for one another, why the elders especially are responsible for looking out for the weak. The, my granddad was a shepherd, I grew up on a farm, and uh, I did lambing and things like that, and um, my dad still has 40 sheep, and I know this, that when he goes out, he goes out to look for the weak, to look for the lost, to look for the sick. But far too many churches, they're the people we avoid, and that's, that's not the way of Christ. You look for what is best for your neighbor. You love your neighbor as yourself. And neighbor-pleasing is not man-pleasing. It's not trying to make yourself popular by pleasing different people. You just, you want to bear up. 
In, in chapter 14, he's spoken at various times about things that cause people to stumble, things that damage people, and things that tear down. And here he's saying, no, 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 no. Our job is to build up, not to tear down. There is a world of difference between, there's an eternity of difference actually, between denouncing sin and destroying people. The bruised reed he will not break. A church that builds up rather than destroys. A church which copies Christ. Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. This is Paul's great argument. In fact, uh, as you go through this chapter, how many times he's giving practical advice to people, and all the times he's saying, Jesus, 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 Christ, Christ, Christ. Because he's given us all this marvelous theology about what Jesus has done, and the relationship between Jew and Gentile, and between law and everything else. And he's done all of that, and he's applying it now, and he's saying, now, he's not saying, now, here's a list of ten rules. He's saying, this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did. This is how Jesus is. And we are a church which copies Christ. The quote that he uses, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me, is from Psalm 69, which incidentally is a song that is used in the New Testament, I think it's six times. In, in different situations, to speak of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. The insults of those you insult, you have fallen on me. The insults intended for God fell on him. And do you know what Paul says? He says, you've got to be like that. You've got to be prepared to take the bullet for other people. You've got to be pre- prepared to take the flack for other people. So there's someone who's weak and someone who's despised. You go alongside them. You, you realize that you are equal with them. You're on their side. And sometimes you'll be the one who's attacked and mocked and insulted. But we are to be a church which copies Jesus Christ in, in, in all things. I know Sometimes I've, I've talked about this band that you have, what would Jesus do? And you have to be quite careful because um, sometimes we don't know. And there, there's, there's a weakness in that. But I think there's something fundamentally good in that. This is Christ's church. How would Christ behave to people? How would Christ treat people? Well, that's how we have to treat people. Number three, a church which gets endurance and encouragement from the Scriptures. Look at verse 4. Everything that was written in the past, he's just quoted Psalm 69, was written to teach us so that through the endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. See, if I was to ask, where's your hope? And if I was to ask myself, where's my hope? I I would hope that you would be able to hold this book up and just say, look, actually, this is where my hope is. It's in Jesus Christ, but I learn about Jesus Christ from the Scriptures, and it's the Scriptures that give me hope. Being a pastor in this church hasn't uh, always been a complete bed of ease, you know, and um, there have been times when you feel pretty hopeless. And I remember uh, a number of years ago, I was uh, kind of lost a little bit in terms of, I was so discouraged, I was struggling, 
I was tired. There was just so many things going on uh, and didn't know. And I got up one morning and I was going to do the usual, which was put on my computer and answer my emails and then get some breakfast and then read my Bible and pray. And the thought just hit me, you complete idiot, what are you doing? Don't get up in the morning and put on your computer. Don't get up in the morning and look at your phone. Don't get up in the morning and do anything else other than get a coffee and sit down and read God's Word. And I also thought, you know this, I'm going to start reading a good Christian book. And I started reading a guy called John Flavel. And I got so into John Flavel that I thought, I, I can't read more than 10 pages at a time because it's just so wonderful. And for about three or four years, John Flavel was like a pastor to me. And here was the thing. It was just a, a, a great thing to, it didn't matter what happened during the day or during the night, that every morning I got hope and encouragement from the Scriptures. Now, you get hope and encouragement from different things and from other people, but at the end of the day, it's the Scriptures. And this text is so true. It's through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. What are these Scriptures? They're written to teach us. That's why it's so important that we get teaching. That's why I cannot understand how Christians don't want to hear more teaching from God's Word. They're written to teach us. They include everything. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. All Scripture is useful for correction, rebuke, instruction. All Scripture. And you go through the Bible and you go, oh, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I'm struggling with this. Well, welcome to the world of every normal human being. There are things that are really difficult in the Bible, but the Bible feeds you. And I've been reading and teaching the Bible. Well, I've been teaching it for over 35 years, and I've been reading it for over 40 years. And I, th this is the truth. Every time I come to it, it's still fresh to me. And I thank God for that. One of the phrases from Martin Luther that's really provoked me, and it's, it's true, if he who is tired of the Word of God is tired of life, there's everything in here, everything. Um, we, I was preaching through Job once, and I love preaching through Job, and this is when, days when we had pews, days in the morning service when there was 30 or 40 people, and I'd buried a, a woman up in uh, Fintry. No, it wasn't Fintry. It was Kirkton. And uh, about three weeks afterwards, the whole family turned up. And it was like two pews full of people. So our congregation was doubled. Like it was over 60 people. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? Because it was in Job, and it was a pretty heavy chapter, and it was death, death, and mega death. It's like more death, and death, and death, and so on. I thought, I'm just going to preach the Bible, so I preached it. And afterwards, the son at the door, he was about in his early 50s, he, he said to me, just, in a, just it was an amazing conversation for me, he says, you did that deliberately, didn't you? I said, what? He says, just because we didn't come to church, eh? And you gave us a whole year's worth of sermons in one go. And I said, no, 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 I normally speak for that long. <laughs> and he says, I've never heard anyone speak for more than five minutes of my life, apart from my wife. 
And I said, okay, uh, this is, I said, how did you get on with it? Oh, it's brilliant, he says, brilliant. I didn't know there was all that in the Bible. It's fantastic. And I, I said, well, that was only one chapter. I've got hundreds more. Will you be back? And he said, no. <laughs> but it was, I just, what I loved about it was, you know, as a guy, obviously, he, he, he didn't go to church at all. And I just thought, people say, well, how do you reach that person? How do you reach that? I'm preaching Job. And I'm preaching about death. And he got it. He really did get it. Because the Scripture, it's all the Scripture. And they're also Christ-centered. Even Christ did not please himself. Psalm 69 doesn't mention Christ. But it's full of Christ. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking to the two. And what does he say? Beginning with Moses, and the, he went all the way through the prophets. And what did he do? He taught them about himself. That's really important to understand. And it's through this, in, we get endurance and encouragement taught in the Scriptures that we might have hope. Um, and notice also, if, when you go to verse 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity. Endurance and encouragement put there. Where do you get endurance and encouragement? How does God give endurance and encouragement? Through the Scriptures. So you're weary and you're struggling and you can't cope. You need the Scriptures. You're, you're discouraged. You're flat. You need the Scriptures. You need the teaching of God's Word. This morning I'd said that the motto was preach the Word and see what happens. And I've been asked what does that mean? And I said, well, what it means is simple. That Very often in churches we'll say this should happen, this should happen, this should happen. But we don't know how God is going to work. So teach the Bible and see what God does. There should be an openness to each other, and that openness to God's Word, and those things come together. And again, I just want to stress how important this is in the future for the congregation here, because you can have lots of churches where even their conservative evangelical churches, what they do is they say, yeah, yeah, of course the Bible, of course the Bible. No, 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 of course, everything the Bible, yes, we agree with that, yes, we agree with that, and then they don't do it because they've got the Bible kind of contained, and other things become much more important. I was standing at the door one Christmas, and there were about 15, 20 people for the service before Christmas, and in walked a man called Eric Alexander. And of course, I recognized him. He was, to me, I was in awe of him as a kind of preacher, the greatest preacher, and so on. And I said, Mr. Alexander, how good to see you here, which was a lie. Um, I didn't want to. Said, Mr. Alexander, how good to see you. I said, um, we have a custom in the free church that when a visiting preacher walks in, they take the sermon, so are you okay with doing that? And he, he smiled and he said, David, that's not my custom. And then he made it worse. I came to hear you. I thought, oh, dear me. I was so badly prepared as well and came up. And Anyway, he would come and visit us occasionally. I, I can tell you exactly when. I'll tell you now when he came to visit us. He was at Logie's, stayed, lived in St. Andrews, and whenever Logie's had a children's service, he hated them. So, he always came here, and I would say to him, Mr. Alexander, another children's service? Oh, yes, <laughs> which was great. But um, I, I remember going to see him one time, and it, the conversation in, uh, with him and his wife in their wee house in St. Andrews had a big impact on me. 
because he said to me, and I had such respect for him, I couldn't even, I couldn't call him Eric. He kept saying, call me Eric. I was like, yes, Mr. Alexander. <laughs> and I, he said to me, David, the church is going to grow. Your church is going to grow. And God is going to bless the church. And to me, he was like a prophet. And I was so encouraged with that. And he said, when it grows, you will come under enormous pressure to water down your preaching and to change it. And the pressure will come from Christians. And I said, no, 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 no. And he said, no. He said, it will. Because they'll be attracted. And they'll want, And they'll all have ideas about what they want the church to do. And you will come under enormous pressure. Well, he was right. And I never forgot what he said. And at times there was pressure. Christians, well-meaning. We need to do this, and we need to do this, and we need to do that. And yet, we need the Word of God. That's the emphasis. A church which gets endurance and encouragement from the Scriptures. Verses 5 to 6, a united church in Christ. Christ is unity. Christ is the way to unity. We need unity within the fellowship here, but also increasingly, I think of the importance of unity amongst Christians throughout this city and throughout Scotland. And there are challenges to that unity because there's a false kind of unity. In a house not too far up the road from here, after being about a year in Dundee, I went to a minister's meeting where everyone sat around and they were asked, what does Jesus mean to you? And I sat absolutely horrified, a relatively young man listening to these mostly men saying, and I remember a man saying, Jesus to me is a communist. And then another said, Jesus to me is a homosexual. And my Jesus is this, and my Jesus is that. And it got to me, and I was so upset. I didn't know you were supposed to keep quiet. And I said, I don't care two hoots about what any of your Jesuses are. I want to know who Jesus is. And they said, oh, no, don't be, you know, it's, it, it, your Jesus is who you, I said, no, that's not use to anybody. Uh, you know, with all respect, no, you have to. Which Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the Scriptures. And we um, began a meeting called, that became DECA and Dundee Evangelical Churches Alliance, and there's been some good things happened with that. But again, what bothers me about it is how watered down it becomes because people say, we have to keep unity. We mustn't disagree. Listen, if you focus on Christ and His Scriptures, then you're able to disagree because you're part of a family. And if all you're bothered about is upsetting other people, you'll never get any genuine or real unity. But disunity also comes through personalities and gossip. So let me give you... Um, two examples of how that works negatively. I went over to St. Andrews, speak at the CU, and afterwards the president, who was from uh, a charismatic church, came up to me and he shook my hand and he said, uh, that was good. And he, he sounded surprised. And he said, I, I'm just delighted that you preached the gospel. And I said, well, why, why did you think I wouldn't preach the gospel? And he said, well, I'd heard from a church in Cambridge that you didn't. I thought, my goodness, that's just bizarre. And then I met somebody who came into the church here, and I, I, I said to them, you know, nice to see you here, and so on. And they said, you know, I wasn't going to come, because her church in Dundee, which was a conservative evangelical church as well, had somebody in her church and said, I'd never go to that church. 
and made all kinds of things. And I thought, do I do that? Do I disparage other churches? Maybe I do. But we need unity, real unity in the church. And look what it says here. It's, you, you have one heart and one mind, so that with one heart and mouth, uh, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may glorify one heart, one mind, one voice. Unity, of course, is not uniformity, but it is absolutely essential and essential in this congregation. Number five is it's a church that glorifies God. That comes from that as well. You, do, you accept one another in order to bring praise to God. You glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of the unity is clear, that all the Christians in Rome might be able to join their hearts and voices in fervent worship of God. Disunity amongst Christians not only damages our own walk with God and our reputation with outsiders, it also damages our ability to give God the glory He deserves. When His children are bickering and fighting, God does not get glory. And our purpose is to glorify God. Our purpose is to bring glory to God. Our purpose is that when any unbeliever comes in, they fall down on their feet and they, they say, truly, God is among you. And when we fight and when we bicker and when we judge another man's servant, as we saw this morning, that does not bring glory to God. Now, there are times when we make a stand for truth, and there are times when we have to dissociate from a brother or sister who, who goes astray, but we need much more unity to glorify God. Our purpose is to glorify God. Verses 7 to 11, we are to be an accepting church, an inclusive church. Now, nowadays, you, one of the ways you've, you've got to think about society and culture is how words are used. And nowadays, if you see a, a notice above a church saying, we are an inclusive church, it means only one thing. It means that we include LGBT teaching, which is contrary to the Word of God. It's not about accepting people. It's, a, it, it's used in that sense, but it is very narrow and very limited. And this is not narrow and limited. What do we mean by an accepting church? Not in the sense that the word has been kidnapped, but in a biblical sense. That it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter in terms of how people identify in their, their sexuality and so on. There are a lot of issues involved with that. It matters that you love, serve, and follow Jesus Christ. In that sense, we're a multicultural church. So, verses 8 to 12 are going back to the, the problem that existed between Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying, listen, Jewish people, your Scriptures prophesied that the Gentiles would come and worship. Gentiles, the Jewish people gave you those Scriptures which prophesied that you would come and do this. You people need to be, to be together. You don't need a separate Jewish church. You don't need a separate Gentile church. You are together. You are one in Christ because Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And again, we note that he quotes Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, Isaiah 52, all 
about putting our hope and trust in Jesus, the Messiah. So, we have to be an accepting church. The church does not consist, and this church should not consist, of people we like or people who are like us. In fact, one of the most desperately sad things for me is often that sometimes some of the people I like are not Christians and they're not believers. And then sometimes you find you come into the church and there are people who you don't particularly like and they probably don't particularly like you, but they are believers and so you have to work together. You have to love each other. You have to accept each other because of Jesus Christ. I find it desperately sad if anyone came in here who was a believer and could, felt that they were not accepted. It happens, and we, we need uh, to look at that. An inclusive church is really important. And by the way, let me just say one thing, what I said before about how churches use inclusive to talk of LGBT. Every year I've been here, there have been people who would identify themselves as LGBT. Are they welcome in the church? Of course. Absolutely. Do we stand up and denounce? No. But what we do do is we teach the Bible, we teach Jesus Christ, and we teach what Jesus Christ taught. We teach also that all of us are sinners, not because of perceived sexuality or an identity in that way, but all of us are sinners. But welcoming people does not mean that we agree with everything or about lifestyle. Everyone is called to repentance and to change, but everyone is welcome. Then the last thing, just let me finish off with this, verse uh, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't, sometimes we do a, a, a neat thing, preachers do a neat thing. We observe that Paul spends about half his epistles doing theology and then we say the other half is practical. And we set these two up as over and against one another. And I, again, I've heard people in the church here say, oh, I'm a practical person, not really a theological kind of person. And I've heard other people say, I'm a theological person, and I don't really do the practical. And you're not following the Bible, and you're not following Paul. Because you'll notice what Paul does. The theology is always poured into the practice, and his theology is always practical. And so, what's he looking at? He's looking at people who've struggled with disunity. He's looking at people who, there's the weak and the strong, what do we do? He's looking at people who, to be honest, are quite hopeless and who are going to be hopeless because of what's going to happen to them. And so, what does he say? He goes back to what he said in verse 17 of chapter 14, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And here he talks about the hope that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, but I love our charismatic brothers and sisters, and I think it's wrong to, um, for people to go, oh, well, they're all just extreme. No, they're not. There's some lovely, lovely Christians amongst our charismatic brothers and sisters. But one thing I will say is this, that so often in charismatic churches, the emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit is right, but the way that it's taught is so often wrong. 
Because the power of the Holy Spirit is not primarily to enable you to feel good or to work miracles or to speak in tongues or anything like that. They're gifts that God can give. But the power of the Spirit is so that you overflow with hope. Why? Because if you look at your own heart, you look at your own circumstances, you look at what's going on in the world, and you're honest, how can you possibly have any hope? And you try and work it up in yourself, and you can't do it because of the way that you are. You can't do it. But the Holy Spirit gives hope. John Stott says, if faith is the means to joy and peace, overflowing hope is their consequence, and all four are due to the power of the Holy Spirit in us. As I indicated before, there have been times here when things seemed utterly hopeless. There have been times when you shake your head and you're, uh, there's a song that Eric Clapton sings. It's an old spiritual, but he sings it with a blues guitar and he sings, you know, dear Lord, give me strength to carry on. And, and all your dreams of being, you know, like a super fantastic Christian are all gone. All you just want to do is just to continue. You just want to keep going. And you know that that's real Christianity when you keep going. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that enables you to do that. I'm very, very thankful. If, if the Lord were to give me the, the gift of healing or something, I'd, I'd be enormously thankful, as I'm sure some other people would be in all. But I think much more important than that is the power to continue, the power to have hope. There was uh, one Sunday in here, I came in the Sunday evening, and I was expecting 10 people, and there was five, and it was pretty depressing. It was dreek, miserable November night, and I sat up here, and I thought, what am I doing? And just started teaching the Bible, and by the end of the service, I didn't care could have been 500 people. It didn't matter. Because the power of the Holy Spirit coming amongst us. And that's what we need. This church will die without the power of the Holy Spirit, without being focused on Christ, without looking at how we can serve Him and serve and help one another. Don't try and do things in your own strength. Please don't try and do things in your own strength. Your own strength is pathetically weak. You can't. But go to the Scriptures to get endurance and encouragement. Go to the God of endurance and encouragement. Have unity amongst yourselves. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, again, we bless you for your word, and we ask that as we have received it, we would have ears to hear, we would have hearts to love, we would have minds to understand, we would have wills to obey. And we pray above all that you would give us the power of your Spirit so that we would overflow with hope, even in the most desperate of circumstances, that faith and joy, and peace, and love would be our characteristics, not because we work them up, not because they are innate to us, 
but because your Spirit is at work in us so that we see Jesus and we rejoice at the beauty of Christ and what He has promised, that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Lord, sometimes we're just enduring. Sometimes we're hanging on by the tips of our fingernails. And yet, your purpose and your plan for us, which cannot fail, is beyond our understanding. We rejoice that it's good purpose and a good plan. And so grant that even this night, we would be given strength to carry on, and we would be encouraged in our most holy faith, for we ask it in your name. Amen.